Welcome to the High Premises Files podcast with me, your presenter, Charlotte Howden. I'm an HG campaigner and the co-producer and presenter of the world's first documentary about hyperemesis. Sick, the battle against HG is available now on Prime Video in the UK and the US with other countries following soon. The High Premises Files podcast acts as a voice for all women who are currently suffering with or who have survived High Premises Gravidarum. On today's podcast, I'm joined by Danica. Danica is a healthcare worker and lives in Somerset in the UK with her partner and daughter. Danica became pregnant with her daughter in 2018 and after what she thought was a hangover and a long weekend spent in bed, was urged by her husband to take a pregnancy test to make sure. She was reluctant to take the test due to many months trying and the disappointment of seeing not pregnant on the test was starting to take its toll. She did eventually cave in though and was shocked to see that she was in fact pregnant. Initially, Danica was experiencing some nausea and sickness and felt what she described as irregular to begin with. It was while she was on a birthday treat trip to Wales that it all started to spiral out of control. This is Danica's hyperemesis story. Danica, how many weeks pregnant were you when you were on that holiday in Wales? Um, So I I think we were about six weeks, no no more than, you know, eight anyway. And how quickly did you start to feel ill and what were you experiencing? Um, So I started to feel ill um, pretty early on before I'd even um, done the um, pregnancy test, really. But I put it down to just being nervous because I'd started a new job. Um, and, and it was just nausea all, all throughout the day. And then I'd get to the evening and I'd throw up my evening meal. So it just felt very um, normal says what I'd heard of. Um, but it was when that we were in Wales that I realised actually the nausea was just overbearing. I couldn't, I couldn't do a thing. We'd been out for the day and my mouth was just watering every time I would talk. Or, um, you know, if my mind wasn't distracted, it would be watering. The smell of food would make it water. It was making me feel incredibly dizzy. I couldn't handle smells of, of restaurants. I couldn't handle the smell of the car. Couldn't be in the car or, or drive without being sick. Um, I went to the supermarket and I couldn't even face walking around that because getting up and moving would make me even worse Mm. um and then the day after that we we were still in wales we were due to come home um but the day after it just changed completely and i I went to being unable to keep anything i ate or drank down um and again the the smells would make make me throw up if i was too hot i'd I'd be sick but then i'd be um sick if i was too cold as well so it just felt like a a no win it was literally nothing you could do then was there yeah and obviously I I, I didn't really understand it I just thought oh well you know nobody else has complained Mm -hmm. um this much about it so maybe it's just you know one of those things that will pass in a couple days Mm. and how did you uh, how did your partner respond to you being 
so unwell because obviously you're on holiday and you know you knew you were pregnant but you were there to enjoy yourself and you know do all those things that you do when you're on holiday go for walks go to pubs that kind of thing and you just weren't able to do anything so what was his response yeah so so to begin with in the um while we were were away he was really supportive and you know he couldn't do enough for me he was constantly rubbing my back telling me not to worry and, and all the rest of it but then as soon as we got home um it was about a week later um and I, I just felt so weak at, at, at that point and I was still unable to keep anything down um including water and, and Phil tried to encourage me to have a glass of water and I just broke down in tears yeah. And I just said, obviously, I can't do it every time I drink it. I throw it up. I said I didn't think that it was normal um, because none of my family members had ever said that they were this poorly. Mm. Um, so then we agreed that obviously on the Monday I'd get in touch with the doctors and find out what was going on. Yeah. Um, but I was I was frustrated that to feel I looked fine um, because, you know, a lot of it is a, quite a silent illness. Mm. Um, so I, I looked fine, but on the inside, I just felt absolutely horrendous. And you can't explain that to someone that has never been through it or, or um, has never experienced sickness to that severity. Yeah. And actually, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this. When you are ill, in some respect, you have a cold or a flu or even when you have like the stomach flu, the advice is always, oh, well, let's just have a little bit of water. Let's um, we've got to keep your um, strength up, have some Lucozade try something really you know beige like a crack or something like that and so many people are used to that kind of advice so when they suggest that to a hyperemesis sufferer like it's literally the last thing you need isn't it but yeah absolutely like Phil was making me um glasses of water and glasses of juice like nobody's business Mm. um and if I took like the tiniest tiniest sip I'd be absolutely fine but if I tried to take any more than that then I'd be back to square one again. He, he would always be on about ginger and crackers, obviously, because that's what the doctor had said. Um, so he'd bring me these crackers in in the mornings or dry biscuits and, mm. um, you know, he'd put ginger in all the meals that he cooked and it just didn't do a thing, bless him. <laughs> <laughs> Danica did call the doctor and explained how she was feeling and was surprised to hear that she had what Princess Kate had, which named it, which was great. Of course, the doctor told her she had high premises gravidarum. And whilst this was the first time that Danica had actually heard of high premises, and as a sufferer myself, I can attest to the fact that having a name for the thing that is killing you helps, but having information about it helps more. Danica's doctor prescribed her cyclozine and said nothing more about it. So after speaking to your doctor, um, that was the, the first time that you heard the name Hyperemesis Gravidarum, but you were kind of really just left, weren't you, after that um, diagnosis, I suppose, to find out more about this condition by yourself. So I'm just interested, as someone who was in this um, exact same position, you know, what was the kind of things that you were finding when you were Googling and searching online? Yeah, so when when you, um, obviously when you get told it from the doctor, they speak in their own language, so you haven't got a clue what they're saying. Um, So when we came out of the appointment, we we typed it into Google, and obviously the first thing that comes up is um, Kate Middleton and millions of stories about her suffering with it. 
which is great, but it doesn't give me what I was looking for. Mm. Um, and then you get onto the NHS website, which just gives you some really basic bits of information, like the fact that it's severe morning sickness. It goes away at 12 weeks. It can cause a bit of weight loss. Um, you know, and the way of um, easing it is eating little and often ginger, crackers, um, avoiding fizzy drinks and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. So naturally, we believed that what we read um, was true and that we were looking forward to the cyclozine working and hitting um, the, the 12 week mark. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think that's what a lot of people find. And obviously now I know there's a lot more online because I'm part of that. I'm putting stuff out. But, you know, you don't want to be scrolling to page 52 on Google to be finding, you know, my story or other women's stories. So at eight weeks pregnant, your sickness was just out of control, wasn't it? What what happened when you went to see the doctor again at that point? Um, so, yeah, it, it it was crazy at that point. I was taking a sick bowl um, or our bedroom bin to the bedside. I was waking up through the night to be sick, even though there was nothing in my stomach to throw up. Mm. Um, I wasn't able to get out of bed until at least midday most days. And if I did have a, a relatively good morning where I was able to get out, then I was on the sofa for the rest of the day because the movement of getting up would then set me off again. Yeah. Um, I'd been passing out at my parents. So Phil had to come pick me up and, and take me home because I was too weak to drive myself. Mm. So New Year's Eve, we decided that enough was enough again. Um, we went to the doctors. They did the usual check your blood pressure, my weight and urine levels. Um, and they'd mentioned that I'd already lost over 10% of my body weight, which again, didn't make any sense to me. And, and I didn't really care. Yeah. Um, and they said that my ketones, um, which again, another doctor talk that I'd never heard of before, were at a full plus and the only place for me was A&E so they said they'd refer me over and what happened when you were in A&E um so when I when I got to A&E obviously it was New Year's Eve so it was relatively quiet in the grand scheme of things um but they hadn't actually received um the referral so we were sat in the waiting room for four hours and I'd I was curled up on the chairs not most comfortable place to be no. Um, with my head on Phil's lap, I had a little sick bowl and we'd sat next to the toilets um, so that I didn't have to walk too far when I was being sick. Mm. Um, but even when I was in the toilet being sick, you could hear me from the waiting room because it was so violent. Mm. Yet all I was bringing up was bile. Um, and eventually we got called through and they pressed my tummy to, you know, do their thing, checked my tongue for dehydration um, and suggested that I tried to eat some food. It's quite reluctantly and quite terrified at, at this point. Um, I did try a couple of Doritos. I think it was about three of them. Um, absolutely no more than that, which started to vomiting back up again. And as you know, when when you start, it's really hard yeah. to rein it back in. Yeah, um, it is. It's strange, isn't it? Because it's such a small amount of food, but it seems to you yeah. would expect a really large meal. Of course, yeah, I'm going to be sick for hours, but three Doritos you just think oh maybe I'll be sick it should just be one you know vomiting once but it's not it's like it just can't stop yeah it was um it was really weird especially when your body is in um starvation yeah it was incredible um but then after that they they got me on a drip and chucked me in the CDU ward um they advised that they would actually be checking my bloods for drugs 
alcohol abuse and recheck my HCG levels to make sure I was in fact pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a bit offended by that because you could just tell that this wasn't down to um, drink or drugs. Um, but it, again, I, I wasn't bothered. Just do what you need to do and, you know, get me sorted. I was exhausted with it all. Um, and I just wanted I just wanted some help. But it was obvious that they didn't know um, what to do with me because they let me home the following morning anyway. I'm, I mean, I think you're being... Um... I think very calm when you just said I was a little bit offended. I'm honestly, I'm shocked to hear that they were checking you for drugs and alcohol. Like it's an absolute clear viewpoint from them that they just didn't believe you, which I just honestly, I I, I don't think I've ever heard that. And I've done three series of this podcast now. and I don't think I've ever heard another woman say that that's where they went to first before validating what you've been through. Um, yeah, I mean, it's um, it, it's fair enough if you're going to do that. Um, and I suppose there, there are many hoops that they need to cross. Um, but to then come and tell me that they're doing that rather than just, you know, check my bloods for it anyway, um, was what really offended me. Because I don't think I re- at that stage I really didn't need to know. No, absolutely. And the, and the CDU, that's um, the Clinical Decisions Unit. Is that right? I, to be honest, I never knew what it stood for. Yeah, it was just I was just chucked in this ward with about six or seven other people, all with various problems, very um, very loud. Um, and all I wanted was to just be left alone in a in a quiet little place, mm. so that I didn't have to stress everybody out with being sick, and so that I wouldn't get paranoid or or anxious about being sick because it would actually make me more sick if I if I worked myself up. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is the clinical decisions unit. And I think that's where they try and make decisions, obviously, being the clinical decisions unit about a patient's care, someone who's come into, you know, A&E. But I mean, I just would have assumed that you would have been sent to the early pregnancy unit or, you know, maybe even the maternity ward. Although I do know with maternity wards, you have to be at least 16 weeks pregnant. So but like you said, you just needed somewhere. Where you weren't yeah, I, I wasn't. Um, I wasn't referred to the early pregnancy team at, at all throughout that pregnancy. I didn't even know that it existed until um, after my daughter was here. Yeah, yeah. So you said you know they, they gave you fluids. Did they give you any anti sickness medication? Um, they gave me um, cyclozine through through the drip. Um, well, through the IV, mm. which was fine, but I expected them to obviously send me home with something a bit stronger, considering it wasn't doing anything. Yeah, yeah, and they didn't. No, absolutely nothing. They sent me home with the exact same medication and the same milligram that I was taking before the admission. But I didn't didn't question it too much because I thought, oh, they they know what they're doing. Obviously, um, with being rehydrated, I felt somewhat better, and naively thought that that would be. All, all I needed sort of thing. Three days after that stay in hospital, Danica was back again. This time she had been referred by a different doctor, her ketones were 4+, plus, and was confronted about questions around cancer and whether it ran in her family. Uninterested in her being sick and not offering to administer fluids as soon as possible, she was transferred again to the CDU an anti-sickness medication was administered, as was fluids. Unfortunately, though, the anti-sickness medication wasn't effective 
and she was hooked up to a machine that would beep every time she moved. As she explains in her own words, when you are being sick, it's impossible not to move. She felt like a burden as other patients were becoming frustrated by her machine beeping and so were the nurses. Your next admission into into hospital, um, I mean, it just it really just breaks my heart I can see the rolling eyes and you know the disgruntled noises from from the the very people who are supposed to care for you I mean other patients again should should know how to show sympathy and empathy because they're in there for you know a medical reason but I mean what was it like being back in hospital again and being on that ward again and you know those experiences it was um it, it was definitely scary and, and intimidating and, and quite painful to be completely honest. You know, that's when that's when you're at your most vulnerable, or at least I felt my most vulnerable. Um, you've got very limited knowledge on, on what it is that you're actually going through. You've got no idea on when it's gonna stop or how it's gonna stop. Um, and at this point you haven't even got the comfort of, of a picture of the scan to keep you going. Yeah. Um, so you rely on the nurses being friendly and sort of scooping you up and giving you the strength that you need. Mm. But there was just absolutely nothing. You know, the nurses were just looking fed up with me the entire time. And um, they just sort of avoided me if they could do it. And they ended up transferring you, didn't they? Do you know uh, where you end up being transferred to? Do you know the name of that ward? Yeah, so originally, um, again, this time I was on the um, CDU ward. Um, I was there for one night and, again, they didn't really know what to do with me. So then they transferred me over to the Frality ward, which I I didn't really know about either. I'm not very um, clued up on hospitals and terminologies and things like that. Um, But from what I understand, it's for a ward where people need quite a lot of um, care and attention. Um, and there were five other ladies on there of various ages with different problems. So I spent the four nights um, there and they did give me anti-sickness um, again through the IV. And I was on two at this stage, um, but I, I didn't ask what they were and they, they never said. You know, that's so common as well. And maybe from an outsider's point of view, they might be like, well, why wouldn't you ask what they were giving you? But you're just so, one, you're so weak to even string a sentence together and you're just so possibly hopeful that someone's going to help you that you really just don't care what it is you just think I really don't care what this is as long as it is going to make me better yeah absolutely I mean I was I was at the stage where I couldn't even walk I had to be wheelchaired everywhere because my blood pressure was too low um then being in the wheelchair I'd I'd be throwing up again um and I wasn't allowed to get up and take myself to the toilet I had to have a commode next to me because they were too worried I was too weak to to get myself up um without somebody to help me yeah I I remember that situation and you just feel so helpless don't you because all the things that you could normally do is just take it and like going to the toilet is such a basic you know, thing that we all do every single day. And it's so easy for the majority of us. Um, and to have that taken away from you, it just, you just feel, I just feel like you're losing yourself, don't you? You do. You start to feel quite dehumanised. Mm-hmm. And so they're giving you more, um, well, we don't know what they gave you, but they're giving you something. But was that working? 
um yeah it, it was it was working a lot better mm. um it, it only started working on the fourth day mm. um because the rest of the time I was obviously still being six it takes a while to get your body sort of back on track yeah absolutely. um but I remember having a cottage pie for, for um dinner one day in there and obviously thrown it back up but then I was panicking about being sick to the point that a lady opposite me had to come over and she was rubbing my back and trying to calm me down mm. where I was so terrified of, of throwing up again yeah yeah it's different as well when you're not in your own home isn't it it's not nice when you're in your own home but you're you're on your own there's no one watching you there's no one else around so in hospital you, I, I just I can completely appreciate why you are also for actually physically going through vomiting which is horrible when you're doing it consistently but just having other people around and being able to hear you it's not nice yeah because you can see if, if you're in um, a ward with other people you can see everybody turn and look at you you know you can feel the eyes watching yeah. and obviously it's not a nice sound for, for anybody to hear when someone's throwing up yeah you know it's not a nice sound for us and it's definitely not a nice sound mm-hmm. for somebody that isn't experienced in it um so it just made me feel very, very shy. Like I just wanted to curl up in a ball and hide. Yeah, awful. Yeah. Was it at this point that you were thinking about and then went on to ask for a termination? It was, yes. Yeah. So during in that stay, um, I didn't think I could carry on with it anymore. I was just so, so weak um, and frustrated with it all. I didn't feel like I had a connection to the baby because it felt like I was being tortured. Yeah. Um, and physically and emotionally just felt like giving up. So I asked for a, a termination quite a few times, but the doctor refused me um, and said I was in no state to think rationally, which now looking back, I'm, I'm obviously so, so thankful for. Yeah. But at the time, I definitely, definitely wasn't. It's a difficult one, that isn't it? That is a very big dilemma you know you asking for something it's your body it's your decision and you've made the decision that I can physically and mentally not do this anymore but then the doctor looking at you going but I don't think you can make that decision and I've actually had other women on the show whereby when that's happened the doctor's actually said I need the consent of your partner which isn't actually true whatsoever but I think that was their way of saying I need to put the responsibility onto someone else because I don't think she can make this decision. It's a different yeah. thing, isn't it? And I, I don't think when it comes to hyperemesis, we ever want to get into a place where if a woman has made the decision to terminate that, that she is denied. However, I think what, what needs to happen at that point, I think what the doctor <laughs> could have said to you was, give me 48 hours. That's what happened in my case and, and actually put the responsibility on him to give you the proper care that you so desperately needed. And yeah. to, do you know what I mean? To set things up, put in place for you and say, this is, give me, you know, give me five hours. I'm going to go and write you a care plan, a treatment plan. We're going to work through this together. And if you still after a couple of days or a week or whatever, still want to terminate this pregnancy, then I will support that. Um, yeah it just gives you that bit of um faith in their abilities doesn't it absolutely absolutely when Danica was discharged she was expected to leave hospital with the medication that she had been given whilst she was staying there but she was only given metoclopramide 
The other drug that she had been administered was ondansetron. And less than 12 hours later, she was being sick again. And once again, her partner had to get her to the car and take her back to hospital. Whilst this was going on, she was now becoming more aware of how bad she was at pregnancy. We know that she wasn't, but when you have HG, it's there in your mind. And it didn't help that her brother's partner was also pregnant at the same time and had no sickness whatsoever. So when you were admitted for the third time, you mentioned to me about a nurse who had also had HG, who was caring for you. That must have been amazing when you heard that, you know, she'd actually had this condition as well. Absolutely. Tell me about what she said to you. So as anyone with hyperemesis knows, sadly, it's um, quite a relief when you hear another lady that she's also experienced it. Therefore, you know, they know what you're dealing with and, and in, in some ways know how to help you or what advice to give. So I was over the moon. I let out the biggest sigh of relief because I didn't feel like I had to convince anybody about what was going on. Yeah. But then she soon followed up with, in my second pregnancy, I think it was psychological and all in my head because of the first pregnancy. I was, I was gobsmacked. I thought, oh, God, you know, I thought you were going to be my, my relief, um, the one I needed to get the help, mm. but it just vanished. You were hoping she was going to be your advocate because you weren't able to advocate for yourself. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. She gave you a little bit of hope with one hand and then just took it away again with the other. So when you were discharged again, so you've been in for a third time, you discharged again. Did they send you home with something this time? After the, the third admission, which was all a bit um, up in the air and a bit hazy, mm. um, they, they did eventually send me home with ondansetron and metoclopramide, um, which 90% of the time um, I, I was able to manage with. Mm. Of course, the sickness doesn't completely um, go away because there's not a cure. Um, and some days it was as though I didn't have any medication in the first place. Mm. Um, but for the majority of the time, I at least felt human, which was a massive win for me. And I think at this point, am I right in saying it was your um, brother's partner who was also pregnant at the same time as you? Yeah, yeah, she was. So there was about a four week, um, a four week difference. I was four Mm. weeks ahead of her. Mm. So what was that like having, um, you know, someone else to be able to compare your pregnancy to in the family? It was quite hard. So to begin with, um, I was quite excited. I was like, oh, brilliant. You know, we'll be pregnancy buddies and we can share everything with one another. We can go baby shopping and and all of that. Um, But it wore off very quickly. Um, She had that pregnancy glow that everybody was talking about. I didn't get that. Mm. She had absolutely no sickness, even from the beginning. And she seemed to really, really um, enjoy being pregnant. Yeah. Yeah. I was so miserable the whole time. Um, and it made me reluctant to talk to any of my family or friends about it because I thought that I couldn't complain if somebody else isn't going through the same thing as me. Mm. Um, and, and our families would, would compare us together. Everyone would say, oh, we're having a rough ride. Charlotte's having a really good time, um, which then, you know, makes you drawn back a little bit. And it made me start to resent my baby 
because I believed it was her fault, um, which unfortunately led me to see a counsellor a few months after delivery because I felt like I hadn't bonded with her when she was here. Yeah. And, and at that time, of course, you know, despite the fact you've been in hospital, you were seeing doctors, there wasn't any support for you, wasn't there? Wasn't anyone else? We were hoping it was going to be that nurse who had had HG, but she turned out not to be so helpful. You didn't have like a support around you. But then you found the HG support group on Facebook. And I just wondered, you know, how much did that help you? Did it give you the opportunity to vent and to rant and to, you know, say all the things that you've just said to people who would understand? Yeah, so it was really helpful. Um, and I definitely recommend it to, to anybody else um, in pregnancy that suffers with HG. Because at this point, my family and friends were becoming noticeably fed up listening to the fact that I was in and out of hospital or at the doctors. Um, and I'd been become quite fed up with the question, how mm. are you? Mm. When no one was really prepared for how I was going to answer it. Mm. Um, and Phil was pretty savvy with the internet and researching and stuff. Um, so he said there must be a, a Facebook group or a support forum for this. So he had a look and he did come across a couple on Facebook. But there were two in particular. Um, so he joined one of them with me and I joined the other. Um, and it, it was just a real saving grace. I could rant and rave to, to people that understood it. Other women would share their experiences. So you knew it wasn't all in your head and you didn't feel alone. Yeah. Um, you know, they supported you for, for little wins like keeping a whole cup of tea down. Yeah. You'd get, um, you know, it'd be like a massive celebration and mm. people around you wouldn't understand that, but people on there did. Um, and yeah. if you said about medications you were on or how you were feeling, they were able to let you know or advise you about what foods and drinks to try. Go back to your doctor, have a look at this medication. Um, so it just made you realise there's plenty of other avenues out there uh, and obviously all of us are different. Um, so different medications and, and food work differently for, for all of us. Yeah, but it just gives you that. Um, it's just advice, isn't it? it is, it's, it's online advice from people who are going through the same thing. And whilst it might not work for you, if it does, then that's going to be such a benefit and it's going to really pick you up. So having that and, and, and people speaking in non you know, medical terminologies as well is really helpful. Um, and yeah, I, I just think it's so crucial to have these support groups online and they really do do so much. And they're all, you know, they're all run by people who are volunteers and, but it really does help so, so much. Yeah, it was, it, it was really, really good. Um, and obviously you don't get any of the cracker and ginger and little yeah. and often nonsense on there, which was again, a huge relief because you can't explain to somebody else that doesn't know this condition yeah yeah you just physically cannot eat um ginger or crackers <laughs> no absolutely and and also I think you know one thing I found really difficult when when I was going through high premises was that I almost wanted to keep trying to make people around me get it and I wish I'd given up sooner on that because it took so much of my energy I wish I'd just been like Do you know what they're just not going to get it and I didn't have a support group when I was going through it I didn't even think to look no one advised me on that so I think that's when I became quite inwards and got quite depressed because I'd given up on everyone else but I didn't have anything else to go to yeah absolutely I, I did 
I did the same. So I bought um, I bought a pack of six ginger muffins and they were quite big. And I thought, right, I'll have one of these every morning. This was towards a later stage of pregnancy as well. Mm. Thought I'd have one of these every morning. Um, so at this point we were, we were living with Phil's parents cause we'd sold our house. Mm. So we were mo- moved in with his parents. So I thought I'll have one of these ginger muffins every morning. And then nobody can say I haven't tried. Um, and they were lovely. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> But then to throw them up, it was just, it, yeah. it's not a nice flavour to throw back up. And if they were going to help me that much, I wouldn't have thrown them up in the first place. Whilst all this was going on, Danica had tried to return to work. But as she worked in a care home, she was unable to be around the smells, the food and of course the people. She once tried to go back in again and her employers sent her home immediately. After taking one look at her, they knew that work wasn't the place that she needed to be. She was eventually signed off for the rest of the pregnancy. And as she was approaching the 20-week mark on Danstron and metrocropamide that had been helping her to manage her symptoms had run out. She obviously went back to get a repeat prescription and was denied this due to the cost and told that as she was 12 weeks plus, it really should have stopped by now and perhaps she needed to come off it anyway. Once again, without the Ondanstron, she became bedbound. Too scared to go back into hospital because she just felt so beaten by their constant refusal to help her and believe her and put her on God knows what ward would be next. They tried something else and called 111. Surprisingly, they prescribed her the ondansetron, and once this had been prescribed from 111, her doctors now seemed happy to continue this. So you're 20 weeks pregnant and you've managed to get a constant supply of ondansetron, which has been helping. It's not curing you at all, but it's it's helping. It's helping you to manage the condition. And then suddenly, when you need to repeat that prescription and you go back to your doctor, and he says no tell me about that yeah so I, I I'd gone to see um the doctor for a medication review and she decided that I'm over the 12 week mark and halfway into the pregnancy now um so the sickness should have, have stopped or at least eased off to a manageable um level and that coming off the medication would be good for me um Obviously, and naturally, I was quite hesitant. But again, I thought the doctors know what they're talking about. So I thought, there's nothing wrong, giving it a go. Mm. A few days later, I was back at the surgery for more medication. Um, And this time, I didn't have to actually fight to get them, which was nice. Um, And I actually got an apology off the the doctor for even suggesting it, which was just an absolutely incredible feeling. I bet you wish you'd recorded that, don't you? And then you could oh, just absolutely. because I mean, fell off my chair. yeah, you must have been so surprised because I, I, whilst I managed to get what I needed, I never got an apology. And it was always very much a case of, well, OK, we'll try this then, because um, I was really lucky. My um, uh, one of the specialists on the ward I got referred to ended up calling my GP and I, I'm pretty sure she just swore down the line at her and just said, will you just give her the effing <laughs> drugs because she needs them? But I still yeah. never, you know, I never they got that. Because they so much about um, the, the expense of, of the drugs because that was another one I had as well. Yeah. Um, 
they, they wouldn't give them to me because they were a hundred pound a box or something ridiculous like that. And I, I thought it doesn't matter how much it is a box, you know, what, what matters is my health. I need these. Yeah. Yeah. And what really frustrates me, you're so right. We hear that a lot in this community is that whilst that box might be a hundred pounds, have you added up the night stay in hospital, the IV drip fluid that you might need, you know, all the care that you would need in hospital if you were then admitted back into hospital because you didn't have your medication. And I'm pretty sure it's more than £100. Yeah, it's pretty small sighted. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So at this time, despite because I know some people I know from my journey as well, once I found a combination of medications that were working, I, I almost felt like I had to go back to normal. But I wasn't normal. I'd been through something really traumatic. And I know at this point, whilst, yes, the doctor has finally, you know, given in, apologised, and hopefully now your medication is going to continue and access to it's going to be easy. But still at this point, you were still, you, you were troubled, weren't you? You'd been through so much. And you actually said to your brother one day that you just wanted to die. Yeah, so I, I, I've got a good relationship with all my siblings. I'm, I'm one of eight, but growing up, there was five boys and me in the household. Um, so naturally being the only girl, they've always been very protective. Mm. Um, and my brother's girlfriend had been noticing that my tweets on Twitter were, were becoming quite sad and, and depressing. Mm. Um, so she must have mentioned it to my brother and he, get, he gave me a text to see how I was which was when I told him that I didn't want to be alive anymore. I hated being alive um, and I didn't want to go through another day of the same routine, being in bed, curtains shut, unable to move, eventually crawl downstairs and, you know, sit on the sofa for the rest of the day. It was no life and it's, it's, it's not fun. Um, and when you don't live close to your friends and family, it's very easy to, to become quite depressed with, hyperemesis mm, 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 absolutely and I think sometimes even when you do when you get to a certain place with your depression even if people were still coming around and checking on you I think sometimes you've gone quite far down that rabbit hole haven't you and it's really hard to get yourself back out of that it is especially um it was summertime as well so it, you know it's really sunny everybody's going out and doing things you want to be included, but you're just physically not well enough to really go and even sit in the back garden, never mind going out for the day. Yeah. Um, so it was nice for him to come over and he, he just sat with me. He listened. He didn't force food or drink on me or, or, or encourage me to mm. eat or drink anything I didn't want to. Um, yeah, it was, it was just nice to have that comfort there. Yeah, And yeah. it was something that I'd kept away even from Phil, Phil didn't know that I felt like that up until after Emily was here. And and you get to the point where you're so so worried about putting stress on other people um, because Phil was doing so much. He was cooking every day. He was working. He was coming home and cleaning sick bowls out or emptying the bin liner and things like that. It got to the point where I was like, Do you know what, there's no point in me um, explaining how I feel or what's going on in my head because he doesn't need it anymore mm. um so you become quite um you know quite caged in in yourself at 39 weeks Danica's daughter Emily was born 
She was delivered via C-section due to being breached and not being able to be turned. Danica had been losing fluid, which could possibly have been down to the dehydration. She was done. She was ready for her daughter to be here. She had just gone through too much. Do you think your body was just done at that point? I do. Yeah, I think I was just exhausted. I'd lost a significant amount of weight. Mm. Um, the, the lack of nutrients. I hadn't been to see a dietitian and wasn't taking any vitamins because I couldn't keep them down. Um, obviously, the stress of the, the whole pregnancy and the way it had gone out, the lack of support, the amount of self-blame um, and hatred that, that you go through with hyperemesis, it all just taken its toll. Mm. Um, and it did take me a few days after birth to be completely sick free. Um, and obviously took me a while to build myself back up to eat in a decent sized meal um, and a fair few months to gain any of the weight back. Mm. Um, yeah, the pregnancy definitely made me convince myself for, for quite a while that I didn't want any more children. Yeah. Yeah. And, and do you still feel that way? Um, well, we, we started trying not long ago for another one, found out I was pregnant. And this time round, I was only seven weeks, seven or eight weeks when I lost the baby. Mm -hmm. um, but we had so much better support this time round. And I actually remember saying to Phil um, before I miscarried that if I had this support again, then I might be inclined to have another pregnancy. Yeah. Well, that well, that's really encouraging to hear. And obviously, I'm so sorry for your for your loss, um, especially when you have to, you know, you do have to build yourself up to a second pregnancy, even if you have, you know, things in place, and you feel like the sport's going to be better. It's still a very mental challenge, isn't it to build yourself up to it is. Yeah. And we, um, we kind of naively as well thought that by going on a health kick, um, and, you know, pumping my body with all, all these fruits and vegetables and laying off the carbohydrates, because they're quite heavy, laying off all of that and doing all of that would um, aid the, the sickness and that you know I'd suffer less this time around yeah. but it was it was no different it was probably worse in the initial weeks this time around yeah so I was in hospital at four weeks um, and then I was in again a week later so it started so I mean your first pregnancy obviously started horrifically as well but you were kind of six going into seven weeks this time it was I mean four weeks you're you know you're very very early pregnant that's um yeah so I found out at, um, at a week pregnant and I'd done an extra shift at work um, and came home and I just felt awful so I went to the shop got a pregnancy test came back didn't even mention it to Phil just did the test and I took it into his office and obviously showed him the, the red lines um, and then we went and got a clear blue one that said I was about a week pregnant so we found out very early on yeah. through the nausea yeah. Um, and then I was signed off from two weeks. Thank you for, for sharing that with us. Because um, I know there'll be women listening who have been through the same thing where they've thought, OK, let's see if we can do this again. And then, you know, have have sadly lost the baby. So I really appreciate you sharing that with us. Yeah. One thing I would um, recommend is that obviously with my doctor, they didn't um, they didn't refer me to the early pregnancy unit. Um, but we we have a family friend that works in there um so we got hold of the number and I just phoned 
them myself rather than relying on the doctor. So mm. if you can get hold of any early pregnancy unit number, then perfect, because you don't need to go for a whole rigmarole of the doctor. They'll sort all your medication and, and things out there for you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, when you've done this once or twice or three or how many times before that you build up those contacts, don't you? I know you weren't um, sadly admitted to the early pregnancy unit. I, I was. So if I was ever thinking about doing it again, I know you know where it is I know the number and it's just so sad though isn't it that that isn't available in a first pregnancy you shouldn't have to go through something traumatically and almost build up your own um you know support and knowledge base around this condition that should come from the people who are caring for for you yeah absolutely yeah do you have any um last words of wisdom or advice for anyone who is going through high premises right now just to be patient um, with, with yourself, really, and, you know, not not to blame yourself or, or the baby. Mm. Um, and once the baby's here, if you feel like, you know, you haven't bonded the way you want, then speak to somebody because it, it really does affect um, you mentally mm. for, for a lot longer than just the duration of the pregnancy. Mm. Well, I should just ask, because you did mention that, didn't you? You did say that after... Um your daughter Emily was born you did speak to was it a counsellor or a therapist yeah counsellor yeah and how did you get access to to that counsellor um so originally I phoned the doctor and was going to do it through the NHS but the waiting list is really long yeah um obviously if you can wait do it through the NHS because it's so much cheaper um but I just felt very ready to do it then and I felt if I didn't do it now I'm not going to yeah yeah. Um, so we went down the um, private route, um, which, again, was, was quite expensive, but very helpful. Mm. Um, and, you know, you, you just go into this really calm environment. It's very much just a conversation, but they figure quite a lot out in a short amount of time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they give you so much advice and naturally you just feel relieved. Um, and when you leave there, I, I always used to take a half an hour drive after to sort of mull over everything in my head. Mm. Um, and you really start to come to terms with things or understand things and look at it from another viewpoint, which I felt was really beneficial. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, as part of the campaign that I'm doing, we are pushing for perinatal mental health access for high premises women. But you're right. It's really really difficult and I struggle with saying you know you must get help you must reach out exactly like you've said Danica and and then women will come back to me and say but the wait list is six months and I need yeah, help it, it is really hard and I'm sure that's probably a bit of a postcode lottery as well depending on where you live um and also COVID you know the the, the oh, waiting course, list yeah. must now be so so long so if you can afford it or if you can do something that you know will enable you to you might have to sacrifice something else or but if you can afford to to speak to someone and go privately like you said and you feel like actually now I can't wait I need to speak to someone um but I do also know that some of the charities like pandas are incredible and the mind charity um that do have you know volunteer workers that you can speak to just perhaps in the interim before you can get at the the top of that wait list yeah yeah no it is very very helpful yeah Danica thank you so much for coming on the podcast thank you
um, your story has will resonate with a lot of people. I think it's one of the worst that I've heard of in terms of your treatment and um, access to things and being dismissed. Um, so it's so it's really lovely to hear you come on the show and be quite positive about the future and to hear that you have put yourself first and looked after your mental health, which is so difficult to do after high premises. So um, you should be very proud of yourself. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hyperemesis Files. If you have been affected by anything that has been spoken about in today's podcast, please visit your local Hyperemesis charity or speak to a healthcare provider. For more information about the documentary Sick, The Battle Against HG, please visit www.thesickfilm.co.uk.